turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, let me begin reading actually with verse 1 this morning so that we might get the context. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that we could come to this morning. And God, as we come to this text, it, it challenges us truly, Lord, to <clears throat> understand our own hearts. And we pray today that you might open our eyes, that we would see the truth, not only of what is in your word, but Lord, what is in us as well. And we pray, God, that by your grace, that you would draw us ever more to hope upon you, to draw the joy and the peace and the love that comes only from your hand. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. The New England, the, excuse me, the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl in 2001, three, four. And uh, for many of the fans, though, at the time, they considered 2007 to be their best season. 
You see, the Patriots had just acquired Randy Moss, one of the league's best pass catchers, and combined that with sort of their superstar quarterback, Tom Brady, and the Patriots had a stupendous season. I mean, they were like right out of the gate. They won three games in a row with like a total of 38 points per game, sort of letting the league know that New England was on a mission. They, they actually beat the Redskins like 52-7 to seven and defeated the Bills 56-10. to 10. And during that season, Tom Brady um, set a new record for touchdown passes as well as Randy Moss, who, who had a record for touchdown receptions. And the, the, the whole team itself uh, scored more points in a single season than anyone else, 589 That's an average of like 37 points per game. Well, at the end of the regular season, the Patriots had won every single game they had played. Their their record was 16 wins, zero losses. And up to that date, only just one other team had 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 such a perfect season. But of course, while the season was over, they still had to to go through the playoffs. But that didn't seem to, to pose a problem for them because they did the same thing they did during the season. They found themselves beating every team that they played and found themselves in, in line to go to the Super Bowl 42 in, in Arizona. The only team that stood in their way from the championship was the New York Giants, and the Patriots had already defeated the Giants in the final weekend of the regular season. So most sports world folks thought that the game of the Super Bowl was just merely uh, formality before crowning the Patriots as champions. And so t-shirts were printed up. And in fact, there was a book written about the Patriots' perfect season and, and sold on Amazon six full days before the Super Bowl was even played because the perfect season seemed to be inevitable. But it was not to be. The New York Giants played a nearly perfect game in the Super Bowl. And finally, with just 35 seconds left in the game, Eli Manning threw a touchdown pass and the Giants shocked the NFL world by defeating the Patriots 17 to 14. So the game was over. The NFL championship was over. The perfect season was over. The book was canceled. The T-shirts were probably boxed up and shipped to another country. I don't know, but they, they got rid of them. And now, instead of being remembered as the greatest team ever, the 2007 New England Patriots are remembered for falling short. Now, in all fairness to the Patriots, the landscape of, of sports is littered with similar stories. And it's not just true in sports, but even in the church as well, sometimes we see epic fails. Those men and women of faith that who know the Lord and, and who we uh, see great things happening. We see the Lord using them in mighty and glorious ways, but, but instead of that happening, they leave the church, eventually even leave their faith, And don't persevere to the end and failing to cross the finish line. We all know Christians like that. We all know people like that who used to go to church. 
Maybe we've even grown up with them and have known them for many years and, and we saw their, their zeal for the Lord. Maybe they were ones who went out and shared their faith with others. And, and, and even through their ministry, we saw the Lord bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. We, we saw them using their gifts uh, in the church to serve. And maybe they were even there every time the church doors were open. But no more. That which they once declared that they believe is, is nothing more than a distant memory. They're, they're living just like they did before their quote-unquote conversion. Or, or even worse than that, I, I hear so many stories of those who seem to continue to be deceived into thinking that they're still Christians, even though there's no biblical evidence to support such a profession of faith. And, and the reasons why these kind of things happen are, are, are various. But it's not uncommon that people who leave the faith encounter events in their life that just sort of shakes their faith, that, that tests their faith in a way that undoes them and reveals where their heart truly lies. And so the Bible teaches us that we should not be surprised when we see such things happen. But likewise, it also teaches us that we should not merely accept this as, as okay. And as we come to the book of Hebrews, that's, that's what we see. The writer of this letter with, with pastoral love and care for his people, he lays out the truth of the gospel and its demands for a life of repentance and faith. Not merely for his, his author or his audience to, to hear and to acknowledge but instead to take to heart. He wants to bring the full weight of the gospel truth upon his congregation so they will persevere in faith through hard times that are challenging their faith. You see, the thought of, of losing even one of his flock through unbelief is enough to, to motivate this pastor to strongly encourage his readers to consider their own faith and where they stand with the Lord. You see, finishing well in life is a topic of great concern to the author of this letter to the Hebrews. As a matter of fact, in this section, in chapters 3, uh, all the way through the middle of chapter 4, uh, into verse 13, is, he's really dealing with this whole subject. Unfortunately, just because of time restraints, we have to divide it into three sermons, but, but it still is just one argument. And, and as you look back at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the writer states that he and his readers are true believers. He says in verse 6, If indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope, and then he continues on in his argument. But, but before getting to that, he first gives an illustration of unbelief in verses 7 through 11 of a historical group of people that we know as the Israelites who, who were saying that they were following God and on some level acting as if they were following God, probably more on the outside than they were uh, truly following God from the heart before he continues to address this topic. And, and so this morning, as, as we come to this middle section, I want us to see, as he talks about unbelief, he really covers three things. First of all, he's giving sort of a historical account of unbelief in verses 7 through 11. And then he talks about the present danger uh, 
of unbelief in verses 15 through 19. And then he comes back to talk about the remedy for unbelief in in verses uh, 12 through 14. So let's look at each of these this morning, if we could. First of all, the historical accounts of, of unbelief. This is sort of the, the illustration that, that he gives. And, and as we look at verses 7 through 11, really the passage from this section is almost verbatim a quote from Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 would have been very familiar to these Jewish Christians because it was a psalm of great praise and worship. As a matter of fact, uh, Psalm the beginning of Psalm uh, 95 was used many Sunday or many uh, Lord's days in the temple in, in the worship of God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. You know how awesome it is to hear God's voice command us to come and to worship him. And, and even as you continue on from verse 3 through verse 7, you just continue to see God's praise or, or the, God's people's praise of, of who he is. But then in this psalm, the psalmist changes his tone uh, from that of worship to in verse 8, we then begin to see words of warning. And these words of warning are really a record of how Old Testament Israel fell away from God in different times and in different season. They, they did not heed his true call to worship. They might have gathered outwardly as the nation of Israel to worship, and they might have had all the proper form and, and order, and they might have even been more strictly obedient to the regulative principle of worship than we are ourselves. And yet... In their hearts and their minds, they did not serve the living God. The psalmist, as he's uh, making reference to the Israelites, he's really thinking about two particular events that happened in Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Uh, The first one, as he's talking about the rebellion, in in Exodus uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 17, is is the first place. Uh, We'll we'll get to this passage in just a couple of weeks. We're just a little shy of this in our Old Testament reading on Sunday mornings, but uh, we'll be coming to it. But they had seen God's great power, how the Lord had delivered them out of Egypt, how he had taken them through the Red Sea and, and had even conquered uh, their enemies. And, and as we read this morning, the Israelites saw the dead bodies of the Egyptians on the shore to remind them of the great and mighty power of God to be able to deliver his people from their enemies who were seeking to kill them. And, and so they had seen great and mighty things. But here they are now walking through the wilderness. It's hot. They're, they're tired. They're thirsty. There is no water. And so they begin to complain to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Why didn't you just leave us in, in Egypt? And, and so Moses goes to the Lord and inquires of the Lord. And the Lord says, take your staff, strike the rock, and I'll provide water. And that's what the Lord does. But he calls the place Massa, which means testing, because the people were testing the Lord. Or Meribah, which means quarreling. They were quarreling. They were fighting with God. God, why did you do this? Because 
we see that their hearts were that were ones of rebellion. But the, the last part of this psalm really is a reference to Numbers 13 and 14, where a little while later, the Israelites go on on their journey and they come to the promised land for the first time. And so Moses sends in spies to, to check out the land and they go in and they see that it is a wonderful land. They come back with a report, a united report that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it's great. But then that's where it begins to deviate because there ended up being a majority report and a minority report of these spies. The majority report of the, the 10 spies said, yeah, it is a great land, but the people are giants and we're like little tiny grasshoppers compared to them and they would just squish us. There's no way that we could defeat them in battle. But the minority report, the two spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, they said, yeah, that's true. They are giants, but our God is greater and he can deliver them into our hands. But unfortunately, the people of Israel listened to the majority report and the people followed after them and un after their unbelief. Even so much so that, that they decided that they wanted to come up with a new leader who would lead them back to, to Egypt. Well, the Lord intervened on that behalf. You see, what, what God was doing is after he delivered his people from Egypt, he led them through the Red Sea and took the Israelites on a, a difficult journey in the desert that, that he, um, for the purpose that he was wanting to test their faith. He wanted them to test their faith. Um, it's a lot like the trials and the hardships and the temptations that, that we as Christians undergo. These things reveal the quality of our faith. But, but too often uh, for Israel, Old Testament Israel, they follow God more outwardly than inwardly. So even though they saw great acts of God, mighty things that he had done, they, there was a persistent sin of unbelief amongst the Israelites. You see, the problem with unbelief, though, was is it wasn't just limited to the Exodus generation. It was characteristic of all of Israel, unfortunately, too often. I mean, think about the time of the judges. You know, there was sort of this cycle in the, the time of the judges where the people would receive the Lord's blessing and they would be happy, but then they would eventually rebel against the Lord. And so God would bring his judgment upon them and they would cry out to him and then he would deliver them. You see, they were more concerned about their comfort than of serving God. And, and even as we look at the, the history of the kings of Israel, the same way, there was a lot of wandering hearts and eyes, idolatry, rebelliousness. It's, it's amazing. You ever want to do an interesting study? Study the lives of the kings of Israel. It's amazing how many of those kings led God's people astray rather than protecting them. But, he, but even with this, the psalmist, as he's writing in Psalm 95, even in his day, he, he saw it necessary to address the people, to say, yes, it's good to come and to worship the Lord, but make sure you're not just coming into his house and going through the motions of, of this worship and praise. Make sure that your heart is not one of rebelliousness, but make sure you come to the Lord with a heart that delights in him and seeks to worship and to praise him. And even in the New Testament we, scriptures, we see the Jews that are falling away, crowds who follow Jesus and whom he fed 
and gave bread to. But then eventually Jesus said that he is the bread of life. And he said, if you want, you must eat, eat of me, eat my flesh. And that was a teaching too hard for them. And many left Christ as a result of that. Even as we think about on this Palm Sunday, the event that is oftentimes celebrated in the church of how Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they worship Christ. Yet only by the end of the week to also be ones that yell, crucify him, crucify him. You see, the Bible is teaching us that all who profess faith can fall away if our profession is just a bare one, not one of substance. If it's only one of our mouth. And even Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Look, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Uh, Jesus, sort of as he comes to the application of this Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you can say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he said, you know, on that day I'm going to say that and people are going to argue with me. They're going to, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't I declare your word? Didn't I preach awesome sermons? Didn't I cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, we would have looked at these people and we would have been impressed by the ways that they were serving the Lord. And yet, he said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, those who struggle with a heart of unbelief rarely see that unbelief in their own heart. And so the author of Hebrews wants to hold up this illustration, this example for his people to see the struggles that even those who call themselves believers can have with an unbelieving heart. And so he goes on to talk about the present danger of an unbelieving heart. And he does that in verses 15 through 19. And, and in these verses, the author asks a series of questions that the, the audience would have known the answer to. But he does that in an attempt to, to, have to get them to consider the point that he's trying to make. And the point is this, that he's trying to get his readers to see that the same thing that happened to the Israelites could happen to them. As a matter of fact, as he's quoting Psalm 95 in verses 7 and 8, you know, which is written to Old Testament Israel, in the same way he turns that around and presents that to his audience, to his congregation. And he says, and as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's wanting to challenge them. You see, with that generation's attitude in mind, with Israel's attitude in mind, the author is really saying, don't let history repeat itself. You know, don't become like the Israelites where, you're, where your hearts become hard. And so he cautions his readers against being hard-hearted towards God and tells them that today is the day, now is the moment to believe in God and to follow him. Now, to be hard-hearted in, in many ways is simply just the opposite of 
what it means to be tender-hearted. You know, to be tender-hearted means that our hearts are easily penetrated by the Word of God. That one is touched and won over by God's great redemptive work. That one is moved by God's love. And, and the reason for that, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, is the Lord does a work in the hearts of his people. As, as, we, as we come to the Lord, he, he, he works in our, in our lives. And we read these words, and this is God speaking, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, he replaces that heart. But to have a hard heart toward God is a dreadful thing. Because God's word sits on a, on a stone heart and does not penetrate that heart. Until the evil one comes and snatches the word of God away. Never to be grasped. Never to be loved. Never to be believed. And that's how Jesus describes it in the parable of the four soils in Matthew chapter 13, verses 4 through 9. He talks about the path and how the path is packed down and hard. And as the seed, the word of God falls on it, the birds come and they snatch it up. And he said in verse 19, that's the evil one that snatches the word of God away. And, and we see that. And, and, and different examples of this throughout Scripture. But perhaps maybe the most striking example is, is Pharaoh, who we've been talking about. Despite the great demonstration of God's power and God clearly uh, um, expressing his will to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not yield to God, but stubbornly resisted to the point of his own destruction. And you see, that's, that's what it means to, to be hard-hearted. It is to see your heart become stubborn. And, and so we see why such a heart is called evil or sinful in verse 12, because it turns away from the living God. Now, as we go through this pandemic, God may be testing our faith. You know, we may be pushed to ask questions that maybe we've never considered before. You know, can I trust him with my health and my well-being, or even that of my loved ones? Can I trust that the God will provide food and my job and, and all that I need? I, I know we've gotten through these couple of weeks, but, but what happens when? What if this happens? What about that? You know, as I'm stuck at home and I'm going stir crazy and wanting to see others, can I trust that all things that God brings into my life are for my good, even though it may not be things that, that I want. And, and not only do I know these things, but more importantly, can I rest in him? Can I find peace in him? Is my heart a believing heart that knows my God and trusts in him? You know, as we look at verses 17 and 18, we see that those who would not believe are described as those who are sinned or excuse me, as those who sinned, verse 17, and those who were disobedient. So the sin of the Israelites was one of disobedience, a failure to listen and obey God's word. 
But the particular sin that the writer to the Hebrews focuses in on is the sin of unbelief in verse 19. As a matter of fact, because of that sin of unbelief, they, the Israelites did not enter God's rest. Now, now, why is that? Well, unbelief is at the root of all sin. Falling away starts with unbelief, and therefore unbelief or, or lack of faith is understood as the root of all sin. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, Luke tells of a good tree that bears good fruit, and out of a bad tree grows bad fruit. And so he helps his hearers to see that unbelief comes out of a cold and a stony heart. And, and that's why Jesus, after uh, talking about trees and fruit in Luke six forty three and 44, he then says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? You see, he's trying to help them to see, to say, look, you can say I'm a good fruit, or I'm a good tree, but I'm looking at your fruit. And it's bad fruit. And so that tells me that it's a bad tree. It's in the same way that rotten fruit is the product of a rotten tree, so sinful behavior comes from a sinful, unbelieving heart. And for that reason, those who profess faith in Christ must look diligently into their own hearts to see whether there is evidence of God's work of faith in their lives. And that's true not only for the Hebrew Christians, but even for us today. Which then brings us to the third point, and that is the remedy for, for unbelief. He says in verses 12 through 14, he, uh, the remedy really comes from two exhortations and a promise. Two statements and a promise. The first of which is found in verse 12. Take care, he says, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, what he's saying is, watch out for the gradual development of an evil, unbelieving heart. You know, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So who can understand it? So he, he tells them that they must be diligent and careful in their attempt to understand their hearts and their affections and even the, the uh, resulting actions that come out of our heart motives. Now, how do we do that if our heart is deceitful? Well, that's where uh, Psalm 139, 23 and 24 come into play. We read, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We don't know our hearts oftentimes. We don't see the motives of our hearts, but God does. And so we can pray to him. And, and we see in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, where, where God talks about how the word of God is like a mirror. And, and if, we, if we look at, that, at the word of God uh, to see what is in our hearts and we're only hearers, we'll just walk away and forget what we read, forgot what we see. But he said, if you are a doer of the word, one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not just a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, 
then you'll see what is in your heart and you will be blessed by what you are doing. Um, I think a, a, a great um, passage of scripture, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16 really talks about the, the kind of attitude that a believing heart has towards God's word. You can, you can read that later this afternoon if you like. But he, he challenges his people to guard their hearts from unbelief, not to take their faith uh, carelessly or nonchalantly, but, or nor to take their salvation for granted. But the second thing that he, he says that he exhorts them to do is in verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort daily. The Greek word there for exhort is the word parakaleo. Para means to come alongside and kaleo means to call out. So the picture is of believers coming alongside one another every day, encouraging one another in the practice of the Christian faith. You see, Christianity is not an individual, but a team endeavor. And God uses his body of Christ to, to sanctify us. Uh, Paul Tripp has a video series entitled, uh, um, I just forgot it. Anyway, it's a com- that, that our sanctification is a community endeavor. And, and that's a good picture of what we see here. And so if we don't know the nature of our, uh, of our fellow believers' struggles, if we don't know what's going on in their life, and if we are not uh, um, seeking to help encourage them in their faith, if we don't share with them our struggles in the Lord and who we are, then we will never be able to follow through on this command. As a matter of fact, um, we would be sinning against God to not be caring for one another. You see, this is not just the work of the pastor or the elder. You know, I don't know how many times I've, I've heard people come to me as a pastor and ask, Hey, Pastor Rick, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen him in, in church for a while. Or, or you know, um, how did so-and-so do with their surgery? You know, are they doing okay? Or, or I, under, I understood that so-and-so was struggling with this. How are they doing with that? And oftentimes, we look to the pastor or the elders of the church to be the shepherds and the ones who, who care for the flock, which is true. But we see here that it's more than just the pastor and the elders, that it takes the, the body of Christ um, to, to look after and to care. Now, why is that? Well, look at what he said. The author says that we must do this in order to avoid being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, sin is, is tricky, and, and you'll find yourself discouraged and defeated before you know it. And, and, of course, our human nature, apart from God's saving work, is corrupt through its deceitful desires, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.22. And, and, and not only that, but we also read in Genesis 4.7 that sin seeks to master us, and we must learn to rule over it. And, and not only that, but we also see Satan is seeking, he, he, he roars around, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. But when he comes to us, as Satan comes to us, he comes to us not as a lion, but oftentimes disguised as an angel of light. And so what we see is, is that sin and the devil and even the world uh, is not neutral, but it seeks to come to destroy our faith. 
And that sin advertises itself as pleasure, but delivers pain. And the problem is, is that our hearts are so willing to be deceived. You know, we think, oh, well, I can handle the sin. You know, uh, how, how many times do you hear Christians, maybe they don't say this, but they function this way. They, they think it's easier to ask God for forgiveness when it comes to their sin than it is to ask for permission. You know, so often you see Christians, when they are tempted with their sin, thinking, you know, I, I'm just going to give in to the sin and I'll just ask God for forgiveness later. He'll forgive me. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. But see, what we don't understand is, is that deceitfulness of sin and, and just how sin can harden our hearts. But from sin and deception grows that hardness of heart. And then you combine that with the reality that sin is deceitful in its very nature and you see why we have so great a need for godly fellowship of exhortation and of warning even at the first stages of temptation. We need help being watchful over the spiritual dangerous circumstances that we face. I appreciate the way John Calvin puts it he, he, and, and talks about why this is so necessary. He said, by nature, we are prone to fall into evil. We understand that, don't we? We understand our, our temptation to fall into evil. He said, we have need of various helps to help us in the fear of God. But then he goes on and he goes, unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless our faith is warmed, it grows cold. Calvin says, unless it is aroused, our faith gets numb. So the writer of Hebrews therefore wishes his readers to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their hearts and by his falsehoods lead them away from God. Now how do we do that? I think there's a, a rugged individualism in the church that, that keeps us from doing that. Maybe there's a fear of what other people will think and it's, maybe it's a, a sense of what are you doing in my business? But, but um, it's not just our business. Uh, we are to encourage one another and help one another. How do we do that? Well, let me suggest just a few things. One, pray for each other. Take very seriously the prayer uh, sheet that we give out each Sunday in praying through the different households in our church and pray for each other. But then we also need to get into each other's lives. And that's even more important now that we're doing everything virtually. It used to be, at least on Sunday mornings, we would gather and you could sort of catch up with one another and see how you were doing. But now that's, there's no real place where we have to come in contact with other Christians. And so we have to be more proactive to do so. And so I would encourage you, just whenever you pray for someone on the prayer sheet, just send them a, a, a text or an email or a Facebook message or a phone call, whatever your, is your best way to communicate. And just say, hey, just want to let you know I was praying for you today. Love you. Praying for you. But then maybe beyond that, as, as you get comfortable with that, then begin to send a text or whatever just just to check on somebody and say, hey, how you're doing? Maybe it's not your day to pray for them, but you're just like, hey, I was thinking about you. Just wondered how your week was going. Just just thinking about you. Anyway, or, or maybe it's a, a thing where we know 
someone is going through a difficult time and we've been praying for them. And so we just follow up and say, hey, how are you doing in terms of that? How did the Lord answer that prayer? I've been, I've been praying for you. And just um, as we do that, also being willing ourselves when we are struggling to reach out to others and say, hey, I need you to pray for me today. I am just feeling very depressed with all this, all this pandemic stuff. And I'm just feeling like it's getting on top of me. And I just don't know what to do. And I just, could you pray for me? And, and just being willing to do that. And the more that we build those relationships with others, the more permission we have to get into their lives. And so therefore, the more we can. And so it's very important that we not only watch ourselves, but we also care and exhort others as well. But then he comes to verse 14 in the promise. You know, as, as we've already seen, a, a good beginning really counts for little if there's not a faithful finish when it comes to our faith. And as Christians, we must persevere to the end. And so the author says that in verse 14. He goes, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, what's that original confidence? Well, we are to hold on to that which saved us in the first place. That is the gospel. That is Jesus Christ. We are not saved by works, and so therefore we won't be kept by works. But we are saved by his grace, and God will sustain us by his grace. And that's why we need to persevere to the end. We, we don't need to hear the gospel once and, and believe it and never, never be bothered with it again. We need to, if, if this is a word, we need to be gospelized repeatedly all the days of our lives. And the Christian faith is not about what we once believed on a certain day when we were saved, but it's about what we believe today and that you continue to believe and that you believe in God, not just the doctrines of the church, but that you have fellowship with him, that you humbly walk with him, submitting your will to his. That's what persevering is, avoiding the heinous sin of unbelief by simply continuing to believe in him. I know that for, for most of us, our worlds have been turned upside down these, these past couple of weeks. But what COVID-19, I think, can do for many of us is to strip life down to its essential motives and fears. It can expose the motives and even the sins of our hearts. It can show us our worry, our anxiety, our questions about God's goodness. But as God uses the times in which we live as a mirror to show us even our hearts, it is the gospel that can speak into these circumstances like nothing else. And God is calling you, he's calling me today to turn to him and to trust in him, to believe him. And to know that his promises are true. When he says in Matthew 6 that you can look at the birds in the sky. You can look at the flowers in the field. You can see how God cares for them. And he can say, but how much more precious are you? Surely he will care for you. When he says that, we can trust him in that. When he says, you know, to seek first the kingdom of God, don't worry about the cares of today. Uh, or tomorrow, because today has enough cares as the own, we can trust him in that. 
to believe in him and to know that his promises are true and to know that you can have peace in the midst of ongoing uncertainty because God never changes. He loved you enough to address your sin. He is trustworthy enough to hold you firm to the end. Amen. Let's bow our heads.